the term rent-seeking, we're referring to behavior that is meant to increase an individual's share of the existing wealth in the world without their having contributed anything to that wealth, without expanding it. So while it's possible to accrue wealth by inventing something and getting a patent on that invention, thereby benefiting financially as other people utilize your invention, that is a means of becoming wealthier. That has also made the world wealthier. That invention of yours has increased the overall wealth of the human race by some amount. If you were to become a patent troll, however, which is a company that is established with the sole purpose of buying up patents and then suing other companies who are doing things that are adjacent to or overlap with those patents. The idea being that the people that they are suing will want to avoid a costly legal battle and will pay them a settlement to avoid going down that rabbit hole. Well, then you've created wealth for yourself, but you have not added to the overall wealth that exists in the world. You have extracted wealth from others who have created it, but you have not yourself added anything of value to the economy. Rent-seeking behavior is considered by many to be a very bad thing, at least when we are being explicit about it. Many people would probably be happy to take money, whatever the source, and whether or not they added anything to the world to get it though they might feel at least a little bad about it if the meaning behind that acquisition was made clear to them. But this method of acquiring wealth is a drain on the economy. And importantly, it's also a drain on those who add to, who improve the economy, arguably making the world a better place for most people. Rent-seeking behavior, in contrast, arguably, makes the world a worse place for most people because it sucks up the resources in order to support People and business entities that don't add a thing to anyone else's life, which is not how incentives within a capitalistic system are supposed to work. Patent trolls are a current, very visible manifestation of this behavior, but it's nowhere near the only mechanism for rent-seeking, and this definitely is not a new thing. Rent-seeking has been confounding economists and governments and sociologists since the beginning of capitalism, and before that, too though the concept has been called different things when the production, exchange, and transfer of wealth has taken different shapes. A prototypical example of rent-seeking, according to Nobel laureate economist Robert Schiller, is a feudal lord blocking off a river that flows through his land with a chain to prevent boats from using that river unless they pay him a toll. The lord, in this case, has not in any way improved the river or the lot of the people who seek to use it. He has, in fact, impeded the optimal use of that river and has done so solely to enrich himself and no one else. He has found a way to make money from something that used to be free and in extracting so-called economic rent from these boats, he's manipulated the environment in which economic activity occurs to accrue wealth for himself without adding any new wealth to the world. If you look around, you'll likely be able to identify more than a few fairly obvious examples of rent-seeking without even trying. And if you look more closely at politics, at corporations, at how certain people at the office 
operate, at how the online world is being carved up and utilized, at what types of behaviors society often romanticizes and encourages, you will see countless more examples of this same thing. The reason rent-seeking is so prevalent, it's theorized, is summed up by what's called the Tulloch Paradox. Tulloch being the name of the economist who defined the concept of rent-seeking in 1967, though that term, rent-seeking, was coined by the economist and former World Bank chief Ann Kruger in 1974. The Tulloch Paradox, though, says that the gains of rent-seeking tend to outweigh the penalties meant to prevent rent-seeking. And because of this imbalance, although we make concerned noises about this type of behavior, we haven't actually done a whole lot to stop it. And part of why that's the case may itself be explained by this paradox. After all, if you are in the position to make laws that regulate your own behavior or that of your peers, isn't it likely that you would reap more rewards from regulating in a way that enriches both them and yourself, rather than legislating based on ideology that will make you no wealthier and no more powerful. And further, isn't it likely that when relatively selfless people get into power, they will be more prone to dethronement by those who are less scrupulous and more willing to accrue that wealth and power, which allows them to acquire and hold such positions, and to disempower, consistently, the beneficently ideological? What I want to talk about today is a very specific form of rent-seeking that's become so widespread and common that we barely even notice it, even when its effects are blindingly obvious and immensely harmful to the welfare of society. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. So I've got a couple of fairly significant announcements for this episode. First off, this is the 100th episode of this show. 100 episodes of Let's Note Things Later. I am still having a blast running it. It's been wonderful hearing from you folks out there who are listening to it. It's been great getting that kind of feedback. And I cannot wait to get to work on the next 100 episodes. And then the other announcement today is that I will be going on a speaking tour in the relatively near future. The exact date that this tour will begin is still TBD, but it will be in the third quarter of this year of 2018. And it will be going for a year. I will be traveling around North America. I will be slow traveling, traveling around in an RV, if you can believe it, trying out a very different lifestyle choice for a while. And I will be giving a pair of talks at each stop, at each city that I stop and spend a few weeks in. And so there will be about 25 different cities on this tour. I will be giving a talk about intentionality and becoming who we need to be to deal with our various individual and social issues that we are running up against these days. It's a talk that's loosely based on my book, Becoming Who We Need to Be. And then I'll be giving a second talk that is more along the lines of what I usually speak about on this podcast, a talk about general news and information comprehension and essentially how to survive and be informed in the modern world without going absolutely bonkers. So again, no firm date on when this will start yet. It'll probably be in August or September at the latest. 
but you can find out more details about that, including which cities I lock in as I lock them in and confirm venues and such at becomingtour.com. The tour is called The Becoming Tour, and you can go to becomingtour.com to find out more information about it. I am super excited about this. I've been meaning to do a solo long duration tour for some time, and it just happened to align well with other things that I've got planned for this coming year. I will note that as I travel, I will continue producing this podcast. I will continue to put out a new episode each week, so don't worry about this going away for the duration of the tour. But if you happen to be in one of these cities that I will be visiting, it would be lovely for you to come out and to meet you in person. So again, that's becomingtour.com. A huge thanks to everybody who is listening to my work, reading my work, supporting my work in some way, shape, or form. I am able to consider doing crazy stuff like undertaking a year-long tour around North America because of you guys, and I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. All right, 100 episodes. Jeez. Let's get back to the show. The article I want to start with today comes from CBS News, and it's entitled, Taxes, Is There a Better Way? This piece focuses on an often bipartisan effort to simplify doing your taxes in the United States. The short explanation is that the government already has a pretty good idea of what most people in the country owe. Because it knows, based on your paychecks, your banking activity, your mortgage or lease or rental activity, what you earn, what you spend, and therefore, the outlines of what you should be paying in taxes. The argument, then, is that the tangled confusion of tax preparation, an activity that is so complex in the United States, that the majority of citizens either hire a CPA or invest in software to help them figure out what the hell they're doing, it could actually be way simpler. The government could send you what amounts to a postcard that shows what you made, what you can deduct, what you owe, and instructions on how to pay. That's it. A ridiculously easy system compared to what we have now. One legitimate counter-argument that's generally brought up when this type of system is proposed, is that the government has an inherent conflict of interest in this circumstance. When you do all your own math, assess your own deductions, and file your own taxes based on numbers that you figured out yourself, you are doing so with your own economic well-being in mind. You are incentivized to pay fewer taxes, so you're more likely to do the legwork to figure out if you can benefit from some obscure deduction or something like that. If the government was automating this process for you, though, it would be a lot less likely to take all of those things into consideration because it is incentivized to maximize how much you pay because that is money that it can then spend on bridges and missiles and such. Now, as I said, that is a legitimate concern and it's alleviated somewhat by the availability of taxpayer pushback capabilities. Basically, the government does the legwork, sends you that postcard with what you owe, and if you notice that they left out some deduction that you believe applies to your situation, or if they carried a number wrong somewhere along the way, you can challenge it and submit a claim. This would mean the vast majority of people would have a tedious task automated for them, and a few people would still have to go through the complexities of tax preparation themselves if they notice a flaw or if they have complex finances to begin with. Still, it's a leg up 
over where we are today by most estimations. But the main issue with this system is not any of the arguments against it or even the also legitimate concerns about the cost of transitioning to that new system, but rather the political sentiment against making this change. And that political sentiment, it would seem, is almost exclusively the consequence of successful lobbying efforts by a company called Intuit and its smaller competitors, which among other things, produce a piece of software called TurboTax. There was a piece published in ProPublica back in 2017 that contains what I consider to be one of the better explanations of what's going on here. That piece is called Filing Taxes Could Be Free and Simple, but H&R Block and Intuit are still lobbying against it. And it walks through the millions of dollars spent by these companies, which are technically competitors, but both of which makes tax preparation software and offer an array of tax preparation services, to not just fend off the regular attempts by unbought lawmakers to simplify the U.S. tax system, but to actually get new legislation on the books that would permanently keep the U.S. government from ever changing the way that taxes are done in this country. No pre-filled returns on a postcard, ever. They're trying to seal the gates against a move that would cripple them financially, even though it would quite possibly be incredibly beneficial for the majority of Americans. There's a wonderful term that describes this sort of situation, the Shirky Principle, which says that institutions will try to preserve the problem for which they are the solution. In this case, these companies would no doubt still be able to make tax prep software for folks who wanted to check all possible deductions or manage their complex financial situation. But today, the way things work currently, this is a system pretty much everyone must deal with in some way, shape, or form. They are intentionally, systematically reinforcing the problem for which they sell a solution. The tax preparation and filing business in the U.S. is a $100 to $150 billion a year industry, and the efficiency rating of the tax system is abysmal. About 20% of the amount collected in taxes is spent on collecting taxes, according to a report from the U.S. Government Accountability Office. Part of that inefficiency stems from the outdated methods by which we pay taxes and the ignorance of most U.S. citizens when it comes to paying them, which in turn results in misunderstandings, under- and overpayments that have to be remedied, and other inefficiencies that tend to emerge when a system continues to expand, but the infrastructure upon which it's based stays more or less the same as it was decades earlier. And again, in this case, part of the reason why it hasn't changed is the lobbying from these tax prep companies that benefit from how cumbersome and unintelligible this system is to most people. The payoff for these tax software and service companies has been spectacular. Their industry has been showing gains of close to 10% year over year for a while now, resulting in annual revenues of around $3 billion for H&R Block and closer to $5.5 billion for Intuit. There are free and cheap options now available to most people in the U.S., particularly those with an adjusted gross income of less than $62,000 a year, and those who live in California who have some non-corporate online tax filing options on the books that other states do not. 
But these options are not well-publicized, well-known, or well-understood. And it's worth noting that the Free File Alliance, which provides these free filing services for folks who meet certain conditions, seems to have been part of a negotiation with the United States government by H&R Block and Intuit and other tax services like Tax Act and Complete Tax to maintain the status quo. Kind of a keep things as they are in general and we'll make this token gesture that most people won't know exists sort of thing. They agreed to offer free stripped down versions of their services available to some portion of the public in exchange for an agreement to keep the larger, bogglingly bad system from becoming less bad. So the tax system in the U.S. is a mess, and it seems to be kept this way, at least in large part, because the companies providing the services that make these systems more accessible and less messy for corporations, small businesses, and the public work hard and spend lots of money to keep it that way. If it wasn't messy, they would have less work to do and would make a lot less money. What we have here, then, is both a manifestation of the Shirky Principle and a modern example of rent-seeking. Just like the example I mentioned in the intro, with the feudal lord blocking the river and charging boats that want to pass, these tax preparation companies are maintaining a barrier that need not exist and charging the public to cross it. Solutions exist that could very well demessify the whole tax system, eliminating the need for complex software and preparation services for the vast majority of people. But those who benefit from the current imperfections, those who are making money from that barrier across the river, are doing everything in their power to maintain our very flawed status quo. It is, frankly, disconcerting how common this type of behavior is, not just in the world of tax preparation services, but in modern business and government in general. And one of the best maintained, sharpest tools in the modern rent-seeking tool belt is something called regulatory capture. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, this concept might sound familiar to you. I mentioned state capture in an episode a few months ago called Untouchable, in which I went over how powerful people take control of governments and other institutions to essentially grow their own power and influence at the expense of those governments and those institutions. Regulatory capture is similar in that it involves controlling something for personal gain. But in this case, what's being controlled are regulatory bodies, and those doing the controlling are the entities that are ostensibly being regulated by those regulatory bodies. There are so many examples of this in the U.S. and elsewhere that it's difficult to even know where to start. The Minerals Management Service was a United States Department of the Interior Agency that was dissolved in 2011 after it was determined that those running it had exercised poor regulatory oversight in the years leading up to the famously horrible Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which occurred in the Gulf of Mexico mid-2010 and remains to this day the largest ever marine oil spill in history. And that's not even counting spillage from the leaks that purportedly remained after repairs were completed in 2012. The MMS was in charge of managing natural gas, oil, and other mineral resources on the outer continental shelf of the United States. This agency was also notoriously scandal-laden, but their scandals, including sexual relationships between regulators and employees from the energy firms that they regulated, 
were nothing compared to the consequences of the outright bribery and revolving door relationship that the MMS had with these petroleum and other mineral companies. The corruption here was so flagrant that, as I mentioned, it wasn't enough to simply fire a few people. The entire agency was dissolved and its myriad scandals were uncovered as a result of the Deepwater Horizon spill, which seems to have been a consequence of the lax standards that these companies were allowed to live by because of their cozy relationship with their regulators. In other words, the oil and gas and mineral companies were bribing, sleeping with, providing drugs, and offering up cushy retirement jobs for government officials who were creating the rules by which these companies had to abide. And as a result of this hand-in-glove relationship, the rules that they put into place were cheap and easy for the companies to implement, but were not what most people, including non-corrupt regulators, would consider to be in the public interest. They were inefficient and ineffectual. We've seen similar situations, in some cases less overt than with the MMS, though in some cases even more so, with the FAA, with the Federal Communications Commission. That's been happening for a while, but the most recent head of the FCC in particular is considered to be very much in the pocket of the people he's regulating, having previously worked for Verizon. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York is considered to have been regulatory captured by the sorts of bankers that caused the crash of 08. And the SEC, the Security and Exchange Commission, has been tied up in something similar, having gotten too close with banks that were selling misleadingly labeled toxic mortgage-backed securities leading up to the aforementioned crash. The District of Columbia Taxicab Commission, which is a regulatory body behind cabs and other mass transit in Washington, D.C., has been publicly criticized for favoring taxicab-based transportation solutions rather than bringing companies like Uber and Lyft into the fold, making them part of the solution. Instead, this regulatory body's relationship with the cabbies and the folks who own the cab companies led them to regulate in favor of the cabs at the expense of other services, including ride-hailing services. Similar issues can be found worldwide. The UK's bank regulators have faced many of the same criticisms as the bank regulators here in the States, and have likewise been accused of causing the 2008 market crash. And in Canada right now, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government is being accused of allowing the oil industry to capture their petroleum regulatory bodies, leading to favorable conditions for those companies, but again, in a way that is not necessarily equally favorable for the public interest. One of the big stories of these past few weeks feeds into this topic as well. Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg was interviewed by an assortment of journalistic entities and deposed by facets of the U.S. government. And throughout these interviews and depositions, he seemed not just complacent about the idea of possible sanctions on his industry, the world of social networks and tech companies more broadly. He actually seemed a little bit okay with the idea, maybe even too okay, for someone who has always seemed, like the rest of the tech world, to want to avoid having the government ruin the wonderful party that they've all been enjoying while largely unregulated and allowed to grow to massive proportions, even as they, by some estimates, bypass numerous regulations that apply to similar companies, dodging them because of their somewhat unique status as tech companies instead of, for example, media companies. 
there are two things that were never brought up directly that might help explain Zuckerberg's near enthusiasm about the idea of regulations. First is that when regulations slam into place, incumbents tend to have a new advantage over smaller companies that might later try to challenge them. When there are more rules and regulations to follow, anyone who wishes to enter the industry must have more resources so they can afford to adhere to those rules and regulations. That means Facebook and some other very few large tech companies would be a whole lot safer from all of the barbarians at the gate. These regulations would become difficult to scale walls around the existing status quo. And second, it seems fairly clear that lawmakers intend to recruit people like Zuckerberg to help them figure out which regulations are the right ones. I will link to some more information about this in the show notes, but during portions of these depositions, it was clear that the congressmen and women who were asking the questions were not very knowledgeable about what they were asking. And that someone, quite possibly a younger person who grew up with the internet, who works for them, told them what to ask. And they more or less parroted those questions, trying to act as if they knew what they were saying, but clearly not understanding what they were saying. Many of the questions, as it was noted by members of the press, felt a lot like a grandparent asking their grandson to help them send an email and fix their router. They just didn't know enough about how all these pieces fit together to begin to present their own ideas about how to regulate. And as a result, they spent a lot of their time asking what he would do, how he would regulate his own industry. There's a sort of implied inbuilt regulatory capture that can grow out of these sorts of circumstances. And this kind of setup is not limited to Facebook and today's political representatives. Every new technological revolution leaves the majority of people who reached adulthood before that new technology became available relatively clueless about it. But that same relatively clueless generation are also those who tend to hold the reins of political power. As a consequence, especially in areas related to new technologies, we have the inventors and business people who stand to profit most from those technologies making the rules under which they will operate. And under such circumstances, we tend to find a budding regulatory capture relationship. Part of why regulatory capture is such a difficult thing to lock down is that in most real-world cases, it's tricky to distinguish it from other less pernicious behaviors. The economist Luigi Zingales wrote the following in a paper he published in 2013 entitled Preventing Economists' Capture. Quote, when economists talk about regulatory capture, they do not imply that regulators are corrupt or lack integrity. In fact, if regulatory capture was just due to illegal behavior, it would be easier to fight. Regulatory capture is so pervasive precisely because it is driven by standard economic incentives, which push even the most well-intentioned regulators to cater to the interest of the regulated. These incentives are built in their positions. Regulators depend upon the regulated for much of the information they need to do their job properly. This dependency creates a need to cater to the information providers. The regulated are also the only real audience of the regulators, since taxpayers have all the incentives to remain ignorant. Hence, 
The regulators on-the-job performance will be naturally defined with the regulated in mind, pushing the regulators to cater to the interest of the regulated. Finally, career incentives play a big role. The regulator's human capital is highly industry-specific, and the best job for people holding that specific human capital are with the regulated. Hence, the desire to preserve future career options makes it difficult for the regulator not to cater to the regulated. End quote. So what we have, in short, is a perfect storm for this kind of thing to not just happen periodically, but pretty much all the time, whenever you have typical capitalism-based incentives in place, and a representative democratic system that allows people to be mostly ignorant about such things, and a government system that intertwines in many places with the market. Additionally, some regulations are only obviously in or not in the public interest in retrospect. This means that in the moment, it's difficult to tell if your agencies are behaving or if they're getting too cozy with the industries they're supposed to be policing for the public interest. It's also difficult to keep tabs on regulatory capture that does not directly involve money. A subtype of regulatory capture called materialist capture usually involves both regulator and industry following their individual economic incentives, which will sometimes lead them to coordinate to get more for themselves and less for everyone else. Another subtype, though, is called either non-materialist, cultural, or cognitive capture, all of which refer to a situation in which the regulator begins to think like someone from the industry that they regulate. So the oil industry regulator begins to see things from the perspective of the oil tycoon, and then regulates accordingly. You could potentially show that the regulator in such a case was manipulated, was successfully lobbied, and perhaps illegally, by the industry in question. But it's a tricky accusation to make. Who's to say that they didn't just see the world that way to begin with, or that they didn't just change their mind randomly, and their new mindset just happens to align with that particular industry? or that they changed their mind based on a totally legal lobbying effort? How can you prove that sort of intent when there are not any receipts to use as evidence? It's this difficulty that has led to calls for action from all across the political spectrum, though these specific actions are highly dependent on the one doing the calling. Big government federalist types tend to believe that the best way to prevent regulatory capture is by centralizing and augmenting the power of these regulatory agencies, making them bigger and stronger. There's a decent amount of research that shows that smaller organizations with less power, and especially those that operate regionally, more often fall under the sway of local industries and companies. And it kind of makes sense that they do. If you're a regulator and you live in a town full of people who work for that one big chemical company, all of whom would be out of work if you came down too hard on their employer, I mean, that's got to influence your decisions to some degree. Those are your neighbors. There are a lot of regulatory bodies that eventually become a near subsidiary of these types of company towns. And the same is often true of smaller agencies that operate out of DC and which work closely with those they regulate. Bigger, more powerful, and less localized agencies can still fall prey to capture but they seem to be more prone to the materialist variety, which, again, is easier to identify, track, prove, and punish. 
On the opposite end of the spectrum, small government enthusiasts often argue that it's better to have no regulator hovering over an industry than a regulator that has been or could be captured. And the logic is that, okay, sure, there's no regulator, so you might see some bad behavior, some market-based abuse by powerful companies. But if you set a regulator on them and the companies capture that regulator, then you have an abusive company wielding the power of the market and the power of the government. And that, in their mind, is a far worse, more threatening situation than the alternative. That paper from Zingales I quoted a moment ago goes on to raise the question of whether this concept expands beyond just regulators. Why not economists as well? Why not educators? The same or similar incentives tend to exist in many of these spaces, and because of how they all fit together, it seems likely, if not nearly certain, that the same capture variables are in place beyond just government agencies and other regulatory bodies. Economists are conceivably just as prone to slant their findings to suit the industries that they're researching, and educators could be captured by numerous influences as well, from the whims of students to the politics of their institutions. So not only is this a difficult relationship to identify, it's also possibly more widespread than most of us realize. Additionally, it's possible for regulators and regulatory bodies to be seen or denounced as being captured by those who do not benefit or who are harmed by regulations that they don't agree with. And seeing as how some group will almost always benefit from regulations while another does not or is even harmed by them, it doesn't take a stretch of the imagination to see how even legitimate regulations that are in the public interest without a hint of corruption could look like capture by someone, to someone. So what are the solutions here? How do we prevent this kind of thing from happening so often? And how do we filter potential instances of regulatory capture to figure out if that's actually happening? To figure out when a regulator has been captured and when they have not been captured. In their book, Preventing Regulatory Capture, Special Interest Influence and How to Limit It, authors Daniel Carpenter and David A. Moss say, quote, regulatory capture is the result or process by which regulation in law or application is consistently or repeatedly directed away from the public interest and toward the interests of the regulated industry by the intent and action of the industry itself, end quote. And in a review for that book published by the New Rambler, reviewer Philip Wallach adds, quote, establishing capture requires far more than showing regulated firms getting their way. Regulators must be shown abandoning the public interest at industry's behest, end quote. That seems like a good starting point to me. If we want to home in on solutions to this problem, the question of whether we are putting into place regulations that are in the public interest, or if we're not. But the authors of that book go on to note, correctly, in my opinion, that this is a deceptively difficult concept to lock down. After all, what is the public interest? Could you actually ever come up with a specific enough to be useful definition while also making it broad enough to encompass every single person who makes up the public's individual interests? And are we talking about someone's expressed interests or their perhaps non-existent but perhaps vitally important, deeper, unself-recognized interests? A person might have deeply held religious convictions, for instance, that cause them to avoid getting a vaccine, 
for a disease that is prevalent in their region. It would arguably be in that person's best interest to get that vaccine, perhaps even against their will, because it would protect them and their community due to the herd immunity effects of vaccinations. But that would also arguably be against their best interest, as they are perhaps more concerned, at least consciously, with the spiritual side of this argument, and their belief compels them to avoid vaccines. So by that standard, this interpretation of their interest is misaligned with another interpretation of their interest, and this conflicted interest is just one part of that larger public interest. By that same token, who's to say that the interest of owners of coal mines in Kentucky are not most ideally aligned with an expansion of the coal industry and allowing them to operate however they like? Damn the environmental consequences. Economically, that does seem to be in their interest, even though arguably it's probably very much against their interest if you take into consideration the increasingly likely and horrible consequences of runaway climate change, which all legitimate scientific evidence says is at least partially caused by burning coal and other fossil fuels. But again, consciously, in the short term, this might be a priority for them, and it might be what they would perceive to be their prime interest. How about the coal miners working in the mines. Their economic interest is partially aligned with being able to do that work. And if the coal mining companies went out of business, they would likely find themselves in difficult financial straits. At the same time, it may be in their longer term financial interest to move away from that industry sooner rather than later so that they can shift into a profession that's likely to be around more than a few more decades and ideally something that doesn't come tethered to such a high rate of respiratory diseases and cancers. Health-wise, then, their interest is better served by being shifted, even if forcibly, into essentially any other industry, the equivalent, in some ways, of vaccinating that person who does not wish to be vaccinated because of their religious convictions. But again, some of their other interests, and perhaps those that are most seemingly vital and visible to them right now, would be served by keeping the mines open and flourishing for a very long time. And although you could make a bigger picture argument against that fact, another fact is that these people and their individual interests make up a portion of that larger collection of interests that we call public interest. So what happens when the self-perceived interests of one person, the coal miners, run up against oppositional interests from others, from those who believe the industry should be shut down or so heavily regulated that it's de facto shut down so we can reinvest in other cleaner fuels? Whose interests take precedent here? And which of their interests is favored? And who decides between all of these competing interests? Part of the reason regulatory capture is such a problem is that in most cases, these regulatory bodies are the entities that should be weighing the pros and cons, the consequences of every possible direction, and making decisions, helping to make law that will make those decisions turn out as ideally as possible for the most people possible. And when their leadership, their decision-making mechanisms, are controlled, or essentially controlled, by the people and organizations that will be most dramatically impacted by their decrees, They're no longer capable of taking the broader, multitudinous, complex, and messy picture into full consideration. They're putting more weight behind one group's interest and less behind every other group's. So this situation, to me, looks like the sort of scenario where even if we solve the ostensibly big problem, the issue of regulatory capture, 
by ensuring these entities are less swayable by those that they're regulating and are more transparent and accountable, forced to explain their reasoning and answer to the broader base of the public rather than a very small segment of it, we will still be no closer to solving that other larger problem of never being able to make everyone happy, of always trying to act in the public interest, but never making more than a very small portion of the public, with a capital P, happy, and causing everyone else to be either tepidly neutral or fanatically angry based on their individual needs, or at least their perception of their needs. Like with any kind of bias, though, simply being aware of how these decisions, these regulations are weighted, helps. It allows us to look at the decisions being made and to then reverse filter them in our minds, just as we might look at a story that's being broadcast by a heavily politically slanted news source and understand that there are probably facts in there somewhere, but the way it's being presented and the decision to present this story rather than another story, that's all the consequence of that bias. If you can reverse filter, you can still benefit from the informative stuff and better understand what's happening in the world, despite the presence of those other interests that are simultaneously being served, which doesn't help us solve that larger problem of differing priorities, but it does help us as individuals become more aware of the forces that hover above us, influencing how well or how badly our interests are served, and perhaps even more empowered when we decide to act in support of those interests. So as I mentioned in the intro, I will be going on tour soon, and you can find out information about that tour at becomingtour.com. I would love to hear from you if you are keen to have me come to your city, if you know of a venue locally that would be good for this type of presentation. Any and all information of that kind is super welcome, and you can send me an email through the contact page on letsknowthings.com if you're keen to reach out with that sort of thing. And again, just a great big thanks to everybody who has been listening to the show. If you've reviewed it, if you're planning to review it, if you have become a patron, or if you're contributing in some other way, every little iota of participation, of contribution, of sharing the show with a friend, everything like that is very much appreciated. And it is the reason that I've been able to make a hundred of these things. So thank you very, very much for that. I appreciate you. The podcast that I would like to recommend today is a limited run five episode story that went live last December. So all of them are available. It was put out by the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting in partnership with Louisville Public Media. And it's called The Pope's Long Con. And this is not a super long series. You could actually probably sit down in an afternoon and listen to the whole thing all at once. But it's utterly fascinating. And part of what's so fascinating about it is what happened as a consequence of this. I think most journalists hope to put something into the world that changes things in some way, hopefully for the better, if nothing else, just bringing attention to something, some injustice that's being done, or just to inform the public in some way. Well, these journalists, they informed the public and they changed something. And whether it's for the better or not is kind of up to you to decide. But basically, they put out this podcast series about a pastor and politician from Kentucky named Danny Ray Johnson, who is kind of a Donald Trump-like character, but 
even crazier, if you can believe it. He ran a church and illegally sold alcohol at that church and was involved in a slew of different crimes, beginning with very small ones, just conspicuous lying about things that are easily disproven, all the way up to some incredibly serious sex-related crimes. And despite all this, though, he was able to not just run this congregation that allowed him to pay the bills, he actually became a well-known local politician, running on incredibly prejudiced, super racist, and overtly crazy-sounding ideologies. Well, this podcast is reporting on him, his history, and essentially just goes out and brings a lot of this stuff to the light. It shows where he's lying, that he fabricated his entire history, everything that he's ever bragged about, piece after piece after piece, is just completely made up. And the consequence of this podcast series coming out is that two days later, after it was broadcast, Danny Ray Johnson committed suicide. And so there's this interesting meta story that's happening. I'll include in the show notes a link to a follow-up story, an interview with the journalists for their thoughts on what happened after all this, because there's an interesting meta commentary there about here's somebody horrible doing horrible things. Let's show the public what that looks like, what he's doing. But then that horrible person kills himself. And it seems to be as a result of that reporting. What does that look like? How does that change the dynamic of how we see this reporting? Or does it change the dynamic of how we see this reporting? So if you get the chance, The Pope's Long Con is a really wonderful podcast. You can actually read the full transcript of it too. If you go to longcon, L-O-N-G-C-O-N dot K-Y-C-I-R dot org, you can find the whole podcast there or wherever you get your podcasts, but at that website, you can also find full transcripts. Definitely worth checking out. It will make you a little angry and upset, but it's also utterly fascinating. And in my mind, an example of very good in-depth reporting at the local level. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com. And you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on social media. I am at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and YouTube. And there's actually an Instagram account for that upcoming tour at Becoming Tour if you are interested in following along with that as well. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.